This is the Water Into Wine podcast. Over the coming weeks, I'm going to be describing a journey that I've been on over the past 12 years, telling you about how I started off as a non-believer in the spirit world and ended up as a believer. I'll give you all the clues you need to go and verify this for yourself and go and research for yourself as well, because I don't expect anybody to listen to what I say and just believe it. But I do want you to go and look for yourself because you'll find everything's there. Now, you can find the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and SoundCloud. Just search for Water Into Wine podcast. So welcome back to the Water Into Wine podcast. This is episode 10. Now, last week I started to tell you about um, Tesla, wasn't it? Nikola Tesla. And I started to describe the Wardenclyffe Tower. So let me tell you a little bit more about that, because Tesla perfected a way to extract energy from thin air and transmit it without the use of wires. Um, and he actually built this Wardenclyffe Tower between 1901 to 1917. They also knew it as the Tesla Tower. So construction began on the Tesla Tower in 1901 at Shoreham in Long Island. It was planned to be a transatlantic wireless telecommunications tower. And it was basically for the transmission of power without interconnecting wires. Now, a local businessman, J.P. Morgan, who was also a Freemason, initially funded the project. So the tower was the transmitter, and the idea was to build receivers at certain points all over the world so that it would transmit electricity wirelessly over thousands of miles through the very air that we breathe. Now, they tested it and it worked. J.P. Morgan invested approximately $150,000, which would be millions of dollars at today's values. You've got to remember, this is the early 1900s. Uh, the Tesla Tower was also built on an aquifer, as was the Great Pyramid at Giza. Now, the small electrical current uh, that was produced by the water running through the aquifer runs along the central metal pipe into a huge uh, Tesla coil at the top, where it's ramped up uh, and then transmitted. This is actually called, in today's standards, a step-up transformer. You can buy these. You can buy these small transformers where you plug them into your 12-volt um, electrical cigarette lighter socket in your car, and it gives you 240 volts mains power. The same principle can be observed if someone stands under an electricity pylon while holding a fluorescent tube. It will light up without being connected to a power source. Um, so the electricity is definitely being transmitted wirelessly. Tesla's idea was to build a tower in exactly the right spot and transmit electricity to a receiver quite a distance away. Now, exactly the right spot meant an, an exact amount of degrees away from the equator where the sun hits the earth for the longest time. This accords with the discoveries of Carmen Bolter that I was telling you about in last week's podcast as they relate to the positioning of the pyramid at Giza and its supposed additional functions. Then it suddenly struck me if the Tesla tower worked, which it did, and the electricity needed the coil at the top to transmit electricity, which it did, and if Carmen Bolter's theory was right, the power inside the pyramid was focused at the top, was it the case that the missing capstone was a type of Tesla coil? No one's ever found the capstone from the Great Pyramid. And did it transmit electricity that the pyramid produced? And if it did, what might have received the, the electricity? I also wondered if there were any indications that other ancient civilizations had used electricity. And it was at that point that I stumbled across the Baghdad battery. 
So, in approximately 1936, in a village near Baghdad, Iraq, a large quantity of terracotta pots about five inches tall were uncovered. They were dug up. Now, these pots contained a copper cylinder, which is a, like a rolled-up sleeve of metal. And inside the cylinder was an iron rod. Now, the rod was isolated from the copper with the use of a bitumen cork that uh, fitted very snugly into the top of the pot. You can, you can see these. If you type in Baghdad battery under Google and look at images, they'll show you images of this. Now, if the pot were to be filled with a liquid, the copper and iron metals would both be in the liquid at the same time. And if this liquid were acidic, for example, I'm talking about some sort of fruit juice or vinegar, then a chemical reaction would take place. If a voltmeter were to be placed across the top two terminals of the copper and iron, a voltage would clearly be measured. Now, this is exactly the same design as your car battery. Although the original excavation of the jars was not recorded properly, the date the jars were made is in dispute. Some experts say it could be as old as 250 BC. Now think about what we're saying here. This is a fact. Go and, go and Google it. You'll see it's, it's a portable battery that dates back to 250 BC. That's just, that's just phenomenal. And contrary to what we've always been told, Ancient civilizations had ways of making batteries, obviously. So, just like the Great Pyramid of Giza, we've found proof that ancient civilizations not only could generate electricity, but had a battery that could transport that electricity easily from place to place. Also, there's uh, inscriptions inside the Temple of Hathor at Dendra. Now, in, in the Eric von Daniken book, Chariots of the Gods, Eric suggests that these inscriptions are of a light bulb. Um, if you Google the uh, Temple of Hathor at Dendra and light bulb, it will come up with these, with these images. Now, at first glance, they do seem to resemble a light bulb. You've actually got a, a slave or an Egyptian of some description holding the light bulb up, uh, and there's, there's two of them They're facing each other. It's actually three. There's one on another wall. And at first glance, they do seem to resemble a light bulb. Now, before you start screaming and running around with your head in your hands, wondering if anything we believe really is so, let me pose a question. If the Egyptians had electricity, what other use might they have had for it? At the base of these bulbs, there is what resembles the lotus flower or the blue water lily of the Nile. Remember I was telling you about that in one of the previous podcasts? And from the flower is a lead that goes into a box of some sort, which, which could be a battery, I suppose. There are three inscriptions, as I just said, each one slightly different than the, uh, than the first. The bulb is held up by a kneeling person. And the snake element in the bulb, the element in the bulb, uh, makes three waves. That's in the first one. In the second one, the bulb is held up by a leaning dejed pillar, and the snake makes four waves. The element makes four waves. And in the third, the bulb's held up by a straight dejed pillar, and the snake makes five waves. But I can't just believe these are light bulbs. I'm sorry, this, this is in an Egyptian temple that are thousands of years old. Upon further investigation, I came across a different opinion that seems to fit better with what the Colbrin tells us. Now, it's been suggested that the inscriptions explain a secret initiation or ritual that priests used to perform. 
Now, it's been suggested that the carvings represent a ritual that, as it progresses, changes in sound frequency, vibration. And that's what the different waves on the snake are showing. Now, if this explanation of the inscriptions is correct, there may have been some sort of ritual that not only used the lotus flower or blue water lily of the Nile, but was also held in three parts, possibly in three different rooms, such that the three different frequencies could be administered for each stage of the ritual. Perhaps the ceremony or ritual was also held in secret, as was very common with the most elevated religious practices of most civilizations, primitive or otherwise. But the electricity possibility is a bit tantalizing, isn't it? I don't think it's electricity. As I've told you before, the Colbrin is a collection of documents that were supposedly rescued from the Glastonbury Abbey fire in 1184 and have been looked after by secretive groups ever since. Now, it's clear that the Egyptians knew far more about nature than we suspected, or even than we currently do. We might even say that the purposes of Egyptian civilization seems to have been directed towards enlightenment and harmony with nature, rather than purely acquisitive material consumption, as it is now. As we've already established, the Egyptian pharaohs were given the name the Twice-Born Ones. According to the Colbrin, this seems to be a term that's been held back from us. I can't ever remember them being called this, to be honest, in any documentary or any book, can you? The Twice-Born Ones. There's also been a key distinction between a king and a pharaoh. All pharaohs were kings, but not all kings became pharaohs. And this is because some of them died during the initiation ceremony. Now, the word pharaoh actually means great house. It started as a way of naming the king's palace, but over the course of time became a way of addressing the king. And just as the monarchs of England wear on ceremonial occasions the crown jewels, the kings of Egypt had both the shepherd's crook and flail, which dated back in Egyptian mythology to Osiris and the Woz scepter which was a long staff with a hook at the top and two prongs at the bottom. This presented the spirit world, and at no time was it to come into contact with the floor, because the floor was deemed to be the material world, and that would mean the two worlds would be one. Now, the Woz Scepter can be seen inside any Masonic lodges, even today, during their rituals. Um, I personally have carried one around with me a fact of which about 70% of Freemasons are even ignorant, but that the inner circle knows very well. You'll see it being held completely different by a Mason who does know its significant past, as opposed to one who doesn't. Egyptians are also quite frequently seen carrying the Ankh, or the Ankh. This is a T-shaped staff with a loop at the top. Once again, the T represents the material world, and the loop at the top represents the spirit world, or eternal life. The Colbrin says that the sarcophagus in the king's chamber, which is called the womb of rebirth, was built to an exact set of specifications for the purpose of achieving the twice-born status. It also tells us quite clearly that the Great Pyramid of Giza was built by initiates for initiates. It also confirms that the Great House is actually referring to the Great Pyramid, which is where kings became pharaohs, not his material palace. It also goes on to explain that the pyramid once had a golden top. There's the capstone. There are also speculations that the missing capstone on top of the pyramid that's now missing actually held the Ark of the Covenant in a pure gold pyramid-shaped case. 
so that the pyramid looked finished and had a golden top. If Carmen Bolter's research is correct in suggesting that the pyramid focuses the electrical energy from the Earth at the pyramid's summit, could the Ark actually have acted as a Tesla coil? The Colbrin's text affirms that kings who went into the pyramid to die were resurrected or reborn as God, which is why they were called the Twiceborn. It calls this ceremony the false death, a procedure some initiates did not survive. I have actually been through the ceremony of the false death. That's the third degree in Freemasonry. I've actually been through that to become a Master Mason. Their real deaths were attributed to them drinking, I'm going to try and pronounce this, Kuriladwen. Kuriladwen, I think that's right. A strange bitter drink that released the spirit or enabled an out-of-body experience, as the tribal shaman in the Amazon do even today. If you look at the diagram of the kings and queens chambers in the, in the pyramid, they meet at the same point, linked by a service shaft of kinds. But just before you enter the king's chamber, a portcullis is situated. Three very heavy stone blocks that, when lowered, cut off the entry to the king's chamber. Now, in this way, the king would be completely safe and protected from anyone that might want to harm him during, during this uh, a ceremony, whilst he's unconscious. The initiation of a new pharaoh started in the subterranean chamber, or the chamber of the red light, as the Colbrin puts it. In this chamber, the king, who is described as the anointed one, was warned about the dangers he was about to face, and it was in this chamber that the previous pharaoh uh, tested the king for courage. Now, inside a Masonic lodge sitting next to the worshipful master is the past master, who guides the worshipful master in the rituals they perform. After they were satisfied that the anointed one had understood the dangers, he would be led through the passageways and admitted to the second chamber of darkness, or the chamber of the purple light, the queen's chamber. Here he'd be undressed and placed into a bath of cold water, where they left him for quite some time. This was probably, to be fair, to lower the body temperature, and possibly lower his heartbeat as well. Now the time he was left in there was measured by a burning of a lamp. After the lamp had burned down to its intended level, the anointed one would be carried into a small chamber, which was also the entrance to the caverns of initiation, which is called the statue niche. Its actual name is the portal of restora. That's what the Colbrin calls it, or the portal of ritual. While in there, the king recited a prayer. This prayer asked the natural forces to protect him during the task he was about to undertake. Now at this point he would also promise that he would accept the knowledge that nature was about to give him and use it to help mankind and not for self-gain. The anointed one would then be led to the first cavern of initiation, or the king's chamber as we know it. This is where the ritual corresponds with the rituals of the tribal shaman in the Amazon even today. Cave paintings going back thousands of years painted by a shaman confirm the very same thing that the anointed one was about to see. This is where it gets really interesting. This ritual, along with the resonant frequency inside the chamber, combined with the drugs, it's supposed, kick-started the pineal gland into secreting its precious chemicals so that an out-of-body experience resulted, perhaps revealing other dimensions, therianthropes, or perhaps Mother Nature. Now, I can tell you uh, the drugs 
that he used to take. And I don't suggest anybody ever, ever, ever try this. I can't say this too strict enough. Do not ever try this. But they contained a chemical called dimethyltryptamine. Dimethyltryptamine is, is secreted the closest anybody's ever got with clinical trials, which is a guy called Rick Strasberg. And I'll, come, I'll talk about him a little bit more in a later podcast. He supposes, he can't trace it down, but the closest he can get is that the DMT, dimethyltryptamine, is produced within the human body, which is a fact it is, by the pineal gland. Anybody that goes in a dimethyltryptamine trip comes back and tells, 85% of them tell exactly the same story. They're greeted by Mother Nature. Um, and that's the closest name you can actually put to this to this figure. I've I've been speaking to people that have taken dimethyltryptamine, a very very dangerous drug. Under no circumstances touch it. One of the most banned drugs on the face of the earth. And one recently had his very first trip that I spoke to. This was over Facebook, and I just had a message with him. Just messaged him, and I I asked him certain questions that I knew the answers to because of the Colbrin. And he confirmed everything that I'm telling you. He felt in an all-loving, all-encompassing, all-controlling, all-forgiving entity. He, f- he felt that around him at all times. He felt totally safe, although he was going on a hallucinogenic trip. Um, and I asked him specifically to put a gender on the, the entity that he felt around him. And he said, without a doubt, female. That's where we get the nature, mother nature thing from. Anyway, let's get back to this. There were clearly similarities between this religious experience and uh, and the one supposedly experienced by Jesus, that a last supper with initiates, a special drink from a special cup, a special bodily cleansing, a death, placed inside a blocked off cavern for several days, a reappearance by the finally accepted initiates, into a higher order of knowledge and a serene sense of well-being from the one free to dedicate himself entirely to the service of his people. I personally think that the man we know as Jesus Christ, although there's no archaeological evidence that he ever existed, I personally think he did exist. I don't think the story is from Jesus Christ at all in any way, shape or form. The story was put over the leader of this Christian sect by Emperor Constantine, as I've mentioned in a previous podcast. And I think the man we know as Jesus Christ, Yeshua, actually took this drug. And this is what he's stating in biblical texts. A written explanation of this, I think, was found by the Knights Templar under the mount in Jerusalem. I think they took the drugs. What this drug also explains to you is that The material world, this is where it starts getting a bit weird until you understand quantum physics, which I'll I'll explain in a later podcast. It explains to you that everything around you isn't real. This is a dreamlike existence that we are induced into to teach us. It's it's to teach us things. And when, when we come to the point of death, that's the waking point. We wake up, we see where we actually are. If we haven't learnt our lesson, then we're sent back. And there's reincarnation for you. We're sent back to learn the lesson again. Now, I know this sounds really, really weird. If I hadn't have spent 12 years on this, I'd, 
<laughs> I'd probably be listening to me now thinking, well, can you hear this fella? He's off his trolley. But I've spent 12 years on this and I'm giving you all the, all the clues I can for you to go and find and research it for yourself as well. The details actually differ, but the contours are identical, identifying a common underlying myth of the, uh, the ritual that he's just been through. This is not the sort of thing that the official state-sanctioned church would want us to know, under no circumstances. Drugs, suboral frequencies, rebirth after hallucinogenic intoxication. Can you imagine the Pope emerging, not from the conclave, after the emergence of a coloured smoke from a private chimney, but after the smoking of some sort of life-threatening skunk, permanently altered by the experience? And I'm not saying that he did do that before, we go in, before anyone starts getting in, involved. I'm not saying the Pope did do that, but he, he just wouldn't do it even if he was. He wouldn't say it. On the other hand, the Pope is supposed to be holier after his transformative committee vote, and the smoke may well be aromatic. Back to the pyramid, though. The anointed one would now sit in front of the womb of rebirth and would inhale the brew of release. It would be at this point, the Colbrin states, that all of these secrets would be revealed in the Book of Secret Mysteries. Now... I actually wonder what happened to this book, because I can't find it anywhere. Has it gone missing? In whose interest would that have been? After all, the Roman Catholic Church had its own book, albeit something of a retread. However, the Colbrin goes on to say that the pharaoh ascended like a falcon. Now, the falcon was the only bird that represented Horus, the virgin birth of Isis and Osiris, according to Egyptian mythology. Horus had the head of a head of a falcon or a hawk, and is a therianthrope, which corresponds with those ancient cave paintings that describe what shamans saw during this out-of-body experience. Returning to the legend of the rite, this would-be pharaoh would then drink a variety of strange drinks and then eat a variety of different foods which contained natural products found in nature. Graham Hancock, if you ever get a chance to, to research this man yourself, absolutely fascinating man, an incredibly intelligent guy, incredibly intelligent. Um, I followed his research, and his research indicates that when the tribal shaman mix their hallucinogenic drugs, they use a variety of roots and leaves which constitute a recipe not so far from the one to which the Colbrin alludes. The one that comes to mind that Graham Hancock's got quite a bit of experience with is called ayahuasca. Now, this is made from a leaf of one tree and a root from another tree, and it contains dimethyltryptamine. Now, I think if I got it right, the root is the one that contains dimethyltryptamine. They can't just brew the root up and give you the drink because there's an enzyme in your stomach that stops the dimethyltryptamine being absorbed by the stomach wall and going into the bloodstream. So that's where the leaf comes from. The leaf cancels out the enzyme in your stomach. Um, but as Graham has said many, many times on YouTube, this is not something to be messed around with. And I'll, I'll, I'll echo that. He's violently sick after he first takes it. He then goes off into a trip and all the secrets that we've always wanted to know, all the sayings and all the gospels that Jesus have been, has been talking about come to light. You understand love better than anything else. They teach you that this isn't real. This, this reality that we perceive ourselves to being isn't, isn't real. And it's only when you, as I said before, it's only when you look into quantum physics that you actually fully understand that. It seems nonsense until 
quantum physics. So put that to one side at the moment. Anyway, by this point, the king would be very close to an overdose. This is possibly why some kings didn't return to their body. Now, whether the king would live or not, he would pass out in the early stages of this hallucinogenic experience. The priests would then wrap him and place him in the womb of rebirth. Here, he would start to sweat and struggle in this narcotic state and talk in tongues. After this, he would fall into a peaceful slumber, taken away by Horus, the Egyptian sun god, into the next dimension. There, he would experience the reality of eternal verities that would otherwise be hidden from another mortal man. The king would lay in the womb of rebirth for a few days, for seven days sometimes. Some, some accounts say three, um, including some researchers. Some people say you can experience this in 15 minutes, 10 minutes, but I'm just explaining what the Colbrin says. Now, whether it's three days, seven days, 15 minutes, whatever, there would possibly have been a preparation and recovery to be added onto the time, actually under the drug. So you've got to take that into account with the Colbrin. After coming back to consciousness, though, the successful initiate would experience the crash of thundering doors, very possibly the portcullis being raised. Now, it's claimed that this twice-born would now not only know the grand secret, but that his former faith, this is important, his former faith would be replaced with certainty. He knew what was in front of us. He knew at this point that death was only a waking point and is not the end. We perceive it to be the end because we're on the other side of it. We're on what's called reality. The same way as when you're in a dream. You're dreaming away like a good one and you fall off the top of a building, for example. You still get that <laughs> rush when you're, when you're gasping for air and your stomach feels like it's in your throat and then you wake up. But you only know it's a dream after you've woken up. You never know it's a dream before, otherwise you won't get the adrenaline rush. You wouldn't feel your heart pounding. You wouldn't feel as if you're falling through the sky. But you do because it's real. It's only when you wake up and you look back that it seems silly to have worried about that. Anyway, thus initiated, the, the king would then be helped to his feet by the priests because the newborn pharaoh couldn't stand on his own. He was very weak. He would then be given the sweet waters in a cup of forgetfulness to quench his thirst. Now, it's contended that from that day onward, the pharaoh's attitude would be permanently altered, since the former king would now be at peace with himself and with all men. It's very interesting to consider this account in the light of our modern-day experience of the Dalai Lama, papal elections and the self-anointing of other religious gurus, all of them who seek to embody precisely these same qualities of being at peace with themselves and mankind. They're avatars of enlightenment. Most, but not all, dispense with drugs in our more spiritually aesthetic times. However, as a variety of religious experience, the supposed results and intentions are virtually identical. Now, this transmutation of conscious experience into something else is also, of course, a variety of alchemy. The Bible claims that Jesus changed water into wine. This is called the Water into Wine podcast, and this is why. It may also be an allegory or a metaphor of the same transformative experience. A water into wine is an allegory. Freemasons talk about ashes. An asher is a square, rough-cut stone. There's two of them. There's one rough-cut 
and there's one smooth cut, turning water, which is the rough cut, into wine, which is the smooth cut. Now, Jesus is supposed to have gone to a wedding where he committed one of his first miracles, if you like, where he turned water into wine at the wedding. I don't think he physically turned any water into wine. I believed he imparted knowledge to somebody, sacred knowledge of this type. Turning water into wine is turning an uninitiated person into an initiated person. Turning a man that is unilluminated into an illuminated man. These are all Masonic phrases that I'm using. Now, in the case of water becoming wine, one might also infer a buried reference to the intoxication at the heart of the common shamanistic experience of enlightenment. Now, it's interesting to reflect that on the fact that despite differing cultural circumstances, religions should have devised almost the same end model of his spiritual enlightenment, be our initiator Jesus, a tribal shaman or a pharaoh. The Colbrin suggests that the pharaoh, once he's been initiated, can visit the next dimension almost at will. Now, is, I don't know whether that's a flashback they're talking about or whether he can actually um, read the future and the past as in a medium. He was also given the gift of foresight. It was also said that the pharaoh would seem to glow. Now, that's quite important, that. He seemed to glow. Now, if you go into your Bible, any Bible you want, and read about the transfiguration of Jesus, that's an event. I'm now going to repeat word for word what it's got on Wikipedia about this. That's an event reported in the New Testament when Jesus is transfigured and becomes radiant in glory upon a mountain. They're in the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew 17.18, Mark 9.28, Luke 9.28.36 describe it. And the second epistle of Peter also refers to it. That's Peter 1.16-18. It's also been hypothesized that the first chapter of the Gospel of John alludes to it. That's John 1.14, just in case you want to look them up. Now in these accounts, Jesus and three of his disciples, Peter, James and John, go to a mountain. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. And they do that to pray. Now on the mountain, Jesus begins to shine with bright rays of light. Then the prophets, Moses and Elijah, appear next to him and speaks with them. They actually died 1,500 years before this, remember? Jesus is then called Son by a voice in the sky, assumed to be God the Father, as in the baptism of Jesus. Now that's the transfiguration of Jesus. Go and look it up. It's very, very interesting to read that after you know about the Colbrin Bible and that the pharaohs would seem to glow. It could be a metaphor for describing a certain type of, type of charisma or, again, familiar to those of us who have been in the presence of the spiritually humble but also very self-assured. So without delving too deeply into the possibility of psychological benefits of this near-fatal exposure into a cocktail of extremely potent drugs, could it be that this experience may have altered the normal working of the pineal gland so that it was susceptible either to more conscious control or to more frequent involuntary releases. Put metaphorically, the Great Pyramid of Giza is a gateway or stargate to another dimension for the twice-born king, the saviour of his people. And that's where we're going to leave this week's podcast. Next week I'm going to talk about the Hadron Collider um, because... 
Some very, very, very interesting press releases have been coming out since it started about the Hadron Collider. I'll also tell you about the truth behind the story of Jesus, which makes for very interesting reading, let alone listening to. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast and have a fantastic week. And I'll speak to you again next week.